0: Just a few minutes we will be back in the book of Mark. we are about the halfway mark we are about the halfway point I, yeah we 're about the halfway point of the book of Mark and so we are uh, we 're making headway there 's still another eight chapters or so left and we'll continue to look at those but we have found ourselves in the place where we 're going to be in chapter eight, starting in verse eleven uh, for what we 'll read in chapter eight of Mark this morning before we get to reading our scripture. Um, uh, this question came to my mind as just a way to get us starting to think about what we're going to learn about today, and that is, have you had a time in your life in which you had to prove yourself to someone? Have, have you had a time in your life where someone doubts something about you, whether it's maybe your identity or maybe it's about an ability you might have, and you try to tell a story and or you tell people who you are and they don't believe you? There's a lot of doubt, and you have to go out of your way to try to convince people That yes, indeed, what you're saying is true, and people continue to doubt you, and it comes a point where you are facing this idea of having to prove yourself. Um, There's a game that some of you have played, and I know that some of you have played this because you've played it with me, Uh, and actually last night at our youth event we played this game. It's called Mafia. Uh, Mafia is a card game uh, in which it relies on a lot of, uh, uh, you've got to be able to hide your identity. And and so there's some bad guys, there's some good guys, there's some people that are neither, they're just kind of neutral, and you're trying to discover who the mafia members are and you can get them out of the game. That's how the game works, and I remember there was one time I was playing, and it's unfortunate because I know Caleb was here a week or two ago, uh, but I was playing at the Prince's house, or actually I think it was at the Fritz's house, but Caleb was there, Caleb Prince, and he was mafia, I wasn't. And I'll tell you, it was the end of the game, and the game depended upon this, and we had this debate about who was mafia and who wasn't. And I begged everybody in the circle, I'm not mafia. I promise you. I I gave all the proof I possibly could give. I, I begged. I remember getting down on my knees and begging people, do not vote for me to be mafia. I am not mafia. And yet, after it was all said and done, Caleb proved his point and they ended up voting me to be mafia and everybody lost the game and I felt helpless because I was begging and pleading and trying to get people to see what my identity was. And yet nobody would believe me now maybe you find yourself now i know that's a silly example that's mafia all right that's a game but in life that happens too where there's things that we find ourselves having to prove to people and sometimes we go too far in our pride but sometimes we just need to present some evidence sometimes it gets to the point where we just have to say hey just could you get this this is who i am or this is what i've done i find that as we go to book to the book of mark chapter 8 jesus is in this place Jesus is in a place now where He is being demanded and asked to prove who He is. Now, and so as we dive into the text today, and as we think about the review of what we've seen in Mark so far, which is going to be very important, that we understand where, understand where we've been. So now we get to this point where Jesus, with not only the Pharisees, but also His own followers, He's in a place where he is, He's needing to prove Himself. That no matter, it doesn't matter all the things that he's done up to this point. The first seven chapters of Mark, he's done so much, and yet he still finds himself having to defend himself, having to prove his identity, really having to reveal who he is. Hence why the title of today's sermon is The Revelation of the Servant King. Now, this isn't the revelation of Jesus as far as like the book revelation, this is the fact that Jesus reveals his identity. In the most clear and obvious way, in the next two weeks, we're going to look at this revelation where he he reveals himself to be exactly who he's already been saying he is because he's still at the place where he has to be proving himself to those around him. And so for the next two weeks, we will look at uh, chapter 8, verse 11, and we'll end next week at 9.13. So in these two sermons, we will look at how Jesus reveals himself not only to those around, but those who are even closest to him. But as I said, we do need to go back and look at Mark, what we've been talking about so far. And I know each week we go through this review and it's always the same, uh, but I want to make sure everybody understands where we've been, because if we don't understand where we've been in the life of Jesus, then maybe what we're talking about today and in the future won't make any sense. So far in the book of Mark, we've seen that Jesus is the suffering servant king who is truly God and truly man. He's the suffering servant king. That's who Jesus continually shows himself to be throughout this book. His authority that is invested in him as a result of being king has brought him opposition and pressure. His, his enemies are opposing him and trying to trick him and trying to get him in places where he will condemn himself. And his followers are also even pressuring him constantly to heal them, pressuring him constantly to do what they want him to do. And so therefore he's facing this opposition and pressure. Throughout this, Jesus has taught and demonstrated His kingship. If you remember, if you've been with us throughout the first seven chapters of Mark, Jesus is showing time and time again, He's teaching time and time again that He is sovereign and that He is indeed the King. That the kingdom has come. That is the gospel that He's preaching from the very beginning of this book. That the kingdom of God is at hand and He is the King. And then... We see as he has been demonstrating and teaching this, he was followed by some but rejected by others. We see that there was provision for those who were following him and he confronts those who follow tradition instead of himself. When people will follow tradition, when people will say it's about what I want and what I feel I should do in following the law or doing certain things to please God instead of coming to Jesus as the king and submitting to him. And then last week we saw that in the process of all this, as He's being rejected by the Jewish leaders, Jesus includes everyone in His ministry. He reaches out to the Gentiles. He reaches out to the outcasts. If you pardon this phrase, He reaches out to the losers of society. The ones that people would look at and say, He's deaf. He can't speak. He's a Gentile. She's a Gentile. She's a woman. And all those things were were socially so unacceptable for Jews male Jews especially to associate with and Jesus went out of his way to include everyone in his ministry. And so as he has been doing this, and I want you to remember the background, he's been providing for his followers, he's been confronting the tradition of the elders and of the Pharisees, He has been doing this time and time again throughout these first seven chapters, he has presented himself as a king who is a a king who can provide and a king who can save. And that's where we find ourselves now as we enter chapter 8, starting in verse 11. This morning, if you would follow along with me as we read from chapter 8, verse 11. And actually, I'm going to read all the way through what we will see next week as well. So I'm going to read from 8.11 all the way to 9.13, if you'd follow along. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He said to them, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of Me and My words, in this adulterous and sinful generation of Him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said, Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we have been here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, as they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, "'This is my beloved Son. Listen to him.' And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, "'Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come?' And he said to them, "'Elijah does come first to restore all things.' And how is it written of them, Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did, not, they did to him whatever they pleased, as, as it is written of him. Now, as I said, this is going to be broken into two parts. We won't be looking at this whole passage, but I think as we look at the revelation of the servant king, we see Jesus revealing himself throughout this whole passage. But we're going to start back in chapter 8. verse 11, we see that there is a challenge to His revelation. So we're going to see the challenge of His revelation. The Pharisees come to Him here in chapter 8, verse 11. And the Pharisees who have been continually coming at Him, we see the Pharisees come and began to argue with Him. Some of your translations may say, question Him. This is more than just a question. The Pharisees are coming with this question, but this question is an argument. They are trying to trap Jesus. The Pharisees come with a demand. They demand proof of who Jesus is. They demand proof of who Jesus is. This is not just a a curious request. This is an attack. So I want to make sure we understand that as we go into this passage. The Pharisees are not coming to Jesus saying, Oh, we're really wondering, can you show us a sign that you're the, the Messiah so we can believe in you? This is not a humble request. The way the wording is used here, they are coming at him and saying, you need to give us a sign to show that you are indeed are the Messiah from God. And in their hearts and in their minds, they know and they think that he can't. There's nothing he can do to prove himself to be from God. And here's the thing. There are not, this idea of looking for a sign, this is more than just a miracle. They're not asking him to heal somebody. They're not asking him to make more food out of a few loaves of bread. When they say sign, they are looking for uncontrovertible proof that he is sent from God. Because the Pharisees have seen Jesus do a lot of things. They've seen him heal people. They've seen him uh, raise people from the dead. They've seen him... All these different things that we've looked at in Mark. They've seen him feed 5,000 and 4,000 respectively. They've seen him do these things. And they've heard that he's done these things. They've heard about his miracles, and that's not enough for them. And so what we saw in the past in Mark is they accuse him of doing these miracles because he's a member of Satan's household. He's a demon. And so, what the Pharisees are really doing publicly here is attacking Jesus and saying, look, if you really want us to believe that you're from God, show us something so miraculous and so obvious that there's no question. Cast fire down from heaven. you know, Do something that only God would do so we know for sure that this, indeed, you are from God. Now, Jesus could have done something like this. He could have done something so amazing and so incredible and so obvious Later on, actually in chapter 9, we'll see the transfiguration where he shows himself to be indeed uh, from God. He could have done that before the Pharisees, but that's not what Jesus is here for. He's not here to prove himself as much as he is to show what God has shown him and accept people and have people come to him in faith. The Pharisees aren't coming in faith. The Pharisees had already dismissed Jesus. Honestly, his answer wouldn't have changed anything. That's important to understand. And, and the thing is, you think, about, you think about the Israelites. All through history, how many times did God reveal himself to them and yet they turned their back because they were selfish and they had their own agenda? See, the Pharisees are in the same place. They're coming with Jesus, they're testing him is what we're told. So what's in their hearts is already disbelief. It's already trying to prove Jesus is false. That's what their goal is. So don't think for a minute that the Pharisees are trying to give Jesus away to show them and Jesus messes up here. He knows that no matter what he does, the Pharisees will not believe because they have hardened themselves against faith in him. And so he says, why does this generation seek a sign after he sighs? He's upset. He's grieving. He's angry even that this generation, these people are seeking a sign. And he says, no sign will be given to this generation says, you're not going to get what you want. You need to come to me in faith. This is not about proving myself so you can believe because it's been proven. But I want you to believe because you have faith. As we look at this passage, we see that Jesus is indeed upset about this. He says this and then he leaves them. He doesn't stick around to continue to play their game any longer. The second thing we see in this passage, though, is not only the Pharisees that demand proof of who Jesus is, but we also see the disciples forget who Jesus is. If it's, it's bad enough that the Pharisees, the people who've been coming against Jesus, His whole ministry, are still trying to trap Him. They're still trying to defeat Him. They're still trying to get Him to, to prove that He is not who He says He is. And that's bad enough. But then Jesus gets in the boat in verse 14. And as they get in the boat, and His disciples are there... They had forgotten to bring bread, we're told. And Jesus is trying to then teach them. He takes an opportunity in this boat to say, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. The leaven that Jesus is talking about, if you know leaven is yeast, it's the idea that just a little bit can, can permeate a whole loaf of bread. And the idea is if you let the ide- ideologies of the Pharisees and the ideology of Herod, either luxurious living in, in sensual living like Herod, or living by tradition and living legalistically and trying to be self-sufficient both of them self-sufficiency that leaven will will spread and destroy and Jesus is trying to teach them this important lesson and he mentions leaven and all of a sudden this is where their minds go instead of listening to Jesus and understanding what he's talking about and trying to learn from him they're in the boat Jesus talks about leaven and they're like, oh yeah, bread. I need some bread. I'm hungry. I want to eat. Now, before we judge them too harshly, I think there's been times in our lives where Jesus is trying to teach us something, but we get so consumed with our desires. We get so consumed with our perceived needs or wants that we tend to even shove him away and not truly listen. And so I don't think they're alone here, but this is just so interesting. He's trying to teach them. And they begin to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Their concern is that, oh, we only have one loaf of bread. How are we going to eat? Now, it's easy, like I said, to judge these guys. But Jesus, he's had enough in a sense, and he starts asking questions. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Have you, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Don't you get it, is what he's saying to the disciples? Why were you be complaining about only having one loaf of bread and he goes on and he talks about... He asks them questions to remind them what has just happened only in the last little bit of time. And do you remember the 5,000? I fed 5,000. How many, how many baskets were left? Well, 12. Do you remember when I fed the 4,000? How many baskets were left? Well, seven. And we remember, look at that a couple of weeks ago, and we remember that these are large basketfuls, man-sized baskets. Jesus has provided for thousands of people and yet the disciples are doubting and forgetting that Jesus can provide for them. You see, whereas the the Pharisees never had any faith, and they don't want to have faith, and they want to go out of their way to go against Jesus, the disciples are plain ignorant. They are forgetful. They are ignoring Him. The feeding of the four and five thousand had already happened, and they had forgotten what Jesus can do. This had to hurt Jesus even more. We see that He sighs when the Pharisees come to Him, but these are His closest followers, and they still don't get it. And so He's feeling a challenge to His revelation from the Pharisees, a challenge from His disciples. But in each of these cases, Jesus questions the lack of faith in each group. The Pharisees are left without the sign they sought, and Jesus is saddened by the fact they were even looking for it. He had already done so much, He had already taught so much. As we've looked at the rest of Mark, we see that Jesus is not hiding who he is. He's made it obvious that he is the Messiah that has come from God, and yet the Pharisees will not believe because of their lack of faith. And now Jesus sighs, and he's upset. And he's saddened by the fact that people won't see it. But then it even goes further as we just looked at Jesus reminds his own disciples of his provision in the past and has to confront their ignorance. So the Pharisees have been blind. The disciples have been blind. They're not seeing clearly. They're not remembering Jesus. I want to real quickly, before we move on to the next point, turn over the book of Hebrews. I know this isn't in your outline, but book of Hebrews chapter 11, and many of you know this verse. Book of Hebrews chapter eleven. All right, in chapter eleven, verse one, we're going to start by reading. What faith is. And now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe is created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. As we look at chapter 11, we see that faith, the faith that Jesus wants is not about what we see. He doesn't want us to have faith because he can make bread. He doesn't want us to have faith because he shows a specific sign. You see, how many of us are living our lives in which we expect Jesus to prove himself? We'll talk about this a little bit in the conclusion, but do we expect Jesus to prove himself? Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, and you know what, you come to church and you're asking Jesus, you're asking God or you're thinking in your mind, if Jesus would just give me proof, If I would come to church and there would be something that would happen that I cannot explain, and like there's just some kind of craziness that happens in this church service, if that happens, or if Jesus shows up in my life and does what I need Him to do, and He does a miracle in my life, then you know what? I will follow Him, and you're waiting for Him to prove Himself. He's not wanting to have to prove Himself to you. you. He wants you to come to Him in faith, the evidence of things not seen, the assurance, the confident expectation of knowing who Jesus is. Later on in, in Hebrews, it says that, that faith is this, to, to have confidence in who He is and what He will do. That it's not about just who He is, but what He promises to do, and we trust that. And that is faith, but it's not based about Him proving Himself to us. If you've been waiting for that, you need to come to Him in faith. And say, Jesus, I believe you, and I might not be able to see you, and I might not be able to even understand everything you are or what you do, but I trust that you're in control, and I believe in you. That is faith. And that's what Jesus wants. Not only from his opponents, but also his followers. And so he questions the lack of faith with each of these groups. But remember, as I said, as we move on in chapter 8, we see that Jesus, in a, very spirit, in a spiritual way, what we've seen is we've seen two groups of people that are spiritually blind. They are not seeing Jesus the way they should be. And then it's interesting here, because it looks like it's out of place as we come to chapter 8, verse 22. Jesus heals a blind man. And like, okay, Jesus is in the middle of this talk and then all of a sudden we'll just throw this in. Seems kind of random. But I want to think about this passage. What we see is a blind man is brought for healing. A blind man, a physically blind man, is brought for healing. Now, I have to believe, and as you look at this passage, you think about the context. Especially if you remember what Jesus just said to his disciples. He said, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Jesus has already used the analogy of not being able to see or hear. He's already healed a deaf man not too long ago. And now he's going to heal this blind man. And I've got to believe that this is a physical representation of the spiritual state of what Jesus is seeing. And so this man comes, he's been brought to him, he's a blind man, and it's a picture of the blindness we have seen in both the Pharisees and the disciples. Part of the reason I think we can see this is Jesus heals his sight in stages. You don't see this any other place. When Jesus heals throughout the rest of Mark in the New Testament, when we look at it, a vast majority of his miracles, if not all of the rest of them, are done like that. He says, be healed, and the person is healed. He says, demon, come out, and the demon comes out. And it's complete, and it's immediate. But Jesus does it different for this blind man. And I want you to follow here. I think this is inserted here in Mark because it's perfectly in context of what we've been talking about. And first of all, in these stages, we see first... Jesus heals him partially and he opens his eyes and Jesus says, what do you see? And the man says, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. His sight had been partially restored. He saw some of what he's supposed to see, but he didn't see it clearly. And then after that, Jesus touches him again and then he can see completely. Following this this passage, following this time where the blind man is healed, The next thing we see is that Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ. And then we see after that, and we'll see this next week, that Jesus then helps Peter and the other disciples to see what exactly that means. The implications of the fact that he is the Christ. But as you think about this, in these stages, we see that the the Pharisees are completely blind. They can't see Jesus. They don't want to see Jesus. They have no hope. They can't see a thing. The disciples at this and even going forward, are kind of in the place of the secondary healing where they can see people, but they look like trees. They see Jesus. They understand who Jesus is claiming to be, but they don't quite understand His true identity. They don't quite get it because it's pretty obvious they don't get it in the fact that they still don't trust Him 100%. And so they see almost Jesus as a tree walking around. It's a blurry vision. They know who Jesus is claiming to be, but they can't quite, quite, quite come to grips with it. And so Jesus is now using this blind man to show this idea that even there's complete blindness, there's partial blindness, but that Jesus will, as he restores this man's complete sight, he will give sight to the disciples and we will see that in our next section. Because Jesus will tell them plainly what's going to happen. He'll make it obvious to them. He'll continue to talk to them not only about what's going to happen with him, but what will happen with them and then it, it ends here in Mark 9 when we get there next week about the transfiguration. He takes disciples up on the mountain and shows himself to be the Messiah in no way he's shown himself before. And so we see now that Jesus heals him in stages because he wants to prove a point. There's a, if this is a metaphor in a lot of ways. Jesus is using the picture of the blind man as he's talking with what's going on with his disciples and the Pharisees. And then at the end of this part of the story Jesus sends him away sends the blind man away from the unbelieving village as you understand Jesus has not been accepted where the village they're in and he wants him to go to his home not to go to cast more doubt or to create more controversy but instead just to go home and so Jesus this was a divine appointment the blind man was brought the blind man was healed the blind man was sent away sent away and then we move on back to the main part of the concept here. <clears throat> it seems like a rabbit trail, but I believe it has a lot to say about the spiritual state of what we see. And then, so now we see the consciousness of his revelation—that the disciples have become conscious, conscious of his revelation. They've become conscious of who he is. At least they'd start that; they'd start to understand. Jesus asks about his perception as they're on the road and they're traveling together. He asks, who do people say that I am as they're traveling? Now Jesus obviously doesn't need to ask this question. Jesus, as God, knows what people are thinking about him. And I'm sure he's heard what people are thinking about him. But he wants to ask the disciples because he wants them to start thinking about who he truly is. And they say John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others one of the prophets. So, okay, that's what people are saying. <coughs> Jesus' identity is still misunderstood by many people. There are many different views of Jesus. Many different views of Jesus then. But I would submit to you that today it's no different. There are many views of Jesus today. And maybe... It's not in the same way that we're looking at this. People aren't looking at him as whether he's John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. But churches take Jesus and look at him in different ways. The world takes Jesus. Sometimes he's a good teacher or you can learn from his moral teaching. Uh, there's, uh, Jesus was a good man. Jesus was that, is this. But a lot of people won't say he indeed is the Messiah, the Son of God. And there's a lot of views about Jesus out there. Some people would say he's a myth. There's lots of views about who Jesus is, so things have not changed. If we ask the people around, you could see so many different explanations of who they see Jesus to be. So this misunderstanding of the people in Jesus' day has not changed. People still don't understand who Jesus is, and as He has revealed Himself to us, we need to reveal Him to others. And then Jesus, in this part, asks this question, who do you say that I am? And we see Peter declares Jesus' true identity. Peter declares Jesus' true identity. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. They're finally starting to get it. Jesus asked this question to Peter. Peter answers for the group. It's pretty obvious. To, who do you say? It's the plural. Who are, who do you guys say that I am? Peter says you are the Christ and he strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. Peter seems to speak for all the disciples calls Jesus the Messiah. Jesus doesn't want this revealed to all the masses yet his time had still not come. We've seen that time and time again. Jesus isn't... It, the timing has not come for him to... If people heard this and they went around saying for sure that he's the Messiah and they were showing people that it would be that true. People would be clamoring to have him to be king and there would be political unrest and there would be people seeking to kill him, which there already is, but it's going to get even worse. And Jesus knows there's still more work to be done. As we'll find out next week, Jesus had to help the disciples to see what the fact that he is Christ really means. You see, I would say their, their sight is starting to be restored. They see Jesus as the Messiah, but they don't quite get it. Next week, we'll look at the fact that he tells them that, listen, yes, I'm the Messiah, you're right, don't tell anybody, but this is what you can expect of the Messiah. There's going to be suffering and death and rising again. And then he says, not only that, but there's going to be suffering in your life. And then he, then he shows them in the transfiguration who he is, and we see this continuation of Jesus saying, look, if you, you truly believe I'm the Christ, this is what it looks like, this is what it means, and he'll continue to allow them to become less and less blind. And so, so far, as we've looked at Mark 8, we see that Jesus has been challenged, not only by His opponents, critics, but also challenged in a very personal way, even by His disciples as they've forgotten who He is. But we see that Jesus, out of His compassion and love, is still going to reveal Himself even further to these disciples, even though they didn't deserve it. To some of us, if people doubt us time and time and time again and they won't believe us, it would be easy for us to turn our backs and say, fine, if you don't believe me, I'll move on to somebody else. But that's not what Jesus did. He stays with his disciples. Even though he's frustrated, he asks questions, he gets them to start to understand who he is and he continues to teach them through the book of Mark. From this point on, from verse 31 in chapter 8 on to the end of Mark, this is where we start to see the end of Jesus' life. We start, it, we start by Jesus uh, prophesying it, saying, I'm going to die, and it goes on. The rest of bo- the book of Mark, the next half, is about Jesus' journey to the cross. But he needed to have make sure that his disciples were understanding that before he even got into that journey. Otherwise they would have left, but he wanted them to know what would be happening, and that's what we'll look at next week. So a couple of questions as we do close this morning. My first question I already asked it at the beginning, but I want to ask it again. Are you asking for proof of Jesus? Are you here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior? And you come to Him or you think about this and you think, if Jesus will show Himself to me, if He, if he just does something so miraculous that I can't miss it, then I'll come to know Jesus. I will trust Him. I will give my faith to Him. I will profess him is my Savior, but until I see something, I can't believe it. The Bible is full of the truth that we are saved by faith. That it is faith that saves us, the grace that God has given us to be able to believe in Him. To believe in Him even when things don't always make sense. Because Jesus says, believe in me, trust me, I've shown myself to be who I say I am. Jesus already did the greatest miracle in dying in your place because we all deserve to die because of our sin, our rebellion against God. We deserve to be separated from Him forever in hell. And yet Jesus came to live a perfect life for us so that He could pay the penalty for our sin by dying on the cross, giving His life, rising again to prove that He had power over sin and death. And then all He asks is you come to Him in faith and trust in what He's done and trust in who He is repent of your old way of life and trust him instead that's what jesus calls you to do but you need to do it in faith if you keep waiting for him to prove himself that's not what he's looking for he doesn't want to force people by proving himself to be the messiah he wants you to have faith in him and when you do have faith you will see the truth in such a great greater way than you ever have before the next question is for us who know jesus have we forgotten about him Do we live in blindness even as the disciples did? It would be real easy for us to say, no, I don't do that. But how many times do we let the worries of this life, the lack of bread in the disciples' case, how many times do we let the worries and the cares and the concerns of our life crowd out trust and faith in Jesus? When life rears its ugly head and terrible things happen, We can look to the left and look to the right and this world is a sad, broken place. And that's because of the sin that has entered the world but yet we still need to believe that Jesus is in control even when we don't get it. And yet so many times we let the things of this world that distract us, that we don't have what we want or what we need or we think that life is unfair and all of a sudden we forget who Jesus truly is. If you are saved, He has given you the greatest miracle there is. He's given you a new life no matter what you face in this life, we can look to that and know that he has given us new life and given us new righteousness. But yet so many times we live in blindness and we forget. And that's what living in blindness is for the disciples. They forget. They forgot about the 5,000. They forgot about the 4,000. And they get concerned about how Jesus is going to feed 12 guys in a boat with a loaf of bread. What is it in your life that you are being blind? You're forgetting the grace of Jesus. Because that will show up in the way we live. It will show up in how we complain or what we talk about or you know, how our demeanor is when life is going tough or we don't think we're getting what we deserve. It, it can come out pretty obviously. But we need to have faith in Jesus and know that He's in control and trust Him through it. Because as He's provided before, He'll provide again. And then finally, just a question for all of us here. Do we truly believe in the real Jesus? As I said earlier, there are lots of different views of Jesus. And I would say even in the church, there are views of Jesus that are incorrect. People that come to Jesus and think, if I come to Jesus, He's going to be the one that's going to uh, make my life perfect. It'll make it so that there's no hardships. I'll have health, wealth, and prosperity, and I'll never have a concern. That's pervasive in our churches today. That Jesus somehow is the fix-all. Now, in a very real sense, Jesus will heal us and restore us completely one day, but that's not necessarily true for this world. We can't be promised health, wealth, and prosperity in this world. Jesus wants us to trust Him even when we don't have those things. Or is Jesus, to you, just a God of rules who is wanting to punish us every time we slip up? That's not who Jesus is either. Jesus died for your forgiveness, to give you no condemnation in Christ Jesus, as Romans would tell us. So do we truly believe in the real Jesus? Or have we replaced the real Jesus of compassion and love and sacrifice? Have we replaced him with our own version of Jesus that's much more comfortable? And if we've done that, then we don't really know Jesus. We know a counterfeit. And so we need to consider that in our lives. So with those questions I want you to consider those as we go throughout our week. Are we blind? Do we think we need proof? And do we really believe in the real Jesus? We can't believe in the real Jesus unless we know Him. And so we know Him through reading His Word and asking Him to reveal Himself to us. Next week we will continue to see how He reveals Himself to us. All right. That being said, if everybody would rise, we will sing a song.